All right, so when Bates said um, we in Nehemiah and Ezra this morning, I anticipate a few itchy hearts in the room saying, come on, can't we move on? Can't we go to the next thing? Like, how long are we going to be in this thing? For goodness sake, like Ezra and Nehemiah, we've been here for months. Like, can't we just move on? And this is some of our uh, consumer culture coming out that we want like KFC and we want it now. You know, we don't want to have to grow the chicken and then kill the chicken and then cook the chicken. We just want to go there and pay the money and have the chicken, for goodness sake. Right? So come on, preacher guy. Can't you move on? And I can't. So I think we've still got so much to mine um, inside of this. And I want to just um, affirm again this morning that there's no virtue in something fresh or new. There's nothing virtuous about something just being new or just being fresh. And I think sometimes we feel that that's, you know, the new iPhone comes out and we get schooled in this idea that the newest thing is the greatest thing and must always be there and we get this, this kind of itch in our hearts. In contrast, God's Word encourages us to meditate day and night. It's the word of the Psalms. Meditate day and night. It's a, it's a slow thing. It's not a rush thing. The word of God often speaks with words like consider, think about, ponder these things in your heart. These are not quick words. These are not quickly in the morning brushing your teeth. Lord Jesus, thank you for my day words. These are sitting in front of the fireplace words. These are thinking, pondering, asking the spirit of God to work deeply inside of our hearts and so I recognize that tendency in myself and so I'm putting it out and just anticipating it there might be a few of you feeling that way this morning and so I want to encourage us not to rush on but to keep pressing pressing in and then there's a second and this is a much more vital for what I want to do this morning with the text this is a much more vital reason why we don't rush on and it's because I think that as especially as charismatics if many of you are coming out of a charismatic type background and I use that word loosely and you know what I mean um, but a lot of us are prone to be very glad and accepting of the salvation that Jesus brings but very slow in embracing the history of Christ and what I mean by that is this let me be very clear so you know when I speak about the the Jesus of salvation or the Christ of salvation what does that mean it means we we focus and we emphasize and all the energy is on the current now aspects of the gospel and we accept that so gladly and so willingly. We want that gospel. Give me, give me Jesus, the Jesus of the forgiveness of my sins. Give me the Jesus who gives me righteousness as a, as a free gift. And we come to know Christ as this salvation as our only reference point. And we don't often dig much deeper than that. We're grateful for a ticket to heaven. We're grateful that Christ has saved us. And so we come and we willingly accept the Christ of salvation but we're reluctant to dig deeper. We're reluctant to open the bonnet of the car and to look under the hood and spend time and thoughtfulness around who is this God of history? What has God been doing through the ages? What has He been doing through the Scripture? What is He doing in the Old Testament? There's guys, there's preachers right now that are, that are denouncing the Old Testament, saying it's not valid for our current church. Not Random one little guy on the side, huge mega church leaders that are announcing the Old Testament scriptures. 
We're impoverished because we don't often understand the full picture. We, we see the end and we're grateful for the end. And the end is right. Of course, salvation is right. But we miss the sweeping drama of the story. It's like walking in, as a metaphor, it's like walking in to a movie right at the end. And people are crying and they just had the most beautiful experience watching this movie. And you come in like the last two minutes and you sit down and you kind of get the, the, the punchline. You get what happens, so you know what happens. You've got the end, but you miss the whole movie and we kind of approach our salvation and the gospel sometimes like that like it's just the last two minutes of the movie just say the prayer and come in but we miss that God's been at work for generation after generation and some of the the beauty of this woven tapestry that God has been weaving and I want to encourage us again this morning not to miss that beauty not to miss the power in the history of God's salvation plan that he hasn't just taken Johannes, happy birthday to you. That he hasn't just taken Johannes for however many years. What are you today? 48. I can ask him because he's a man. He hasn't just carried his life for the last 48 years, but that he's been carrying Johannes's since the beginning of time, all the way through. So we must ask questions like Who is the Christ? Who is Christ in history? We must ask questions like, was Christ always the plan? Did God get taken by surprise and then have to quickly come up with another plan and that plan was Jesus? We need to ask these questions. I'm not going to answer them today. I'm just throwing some of them out there as little hand grenades for you. How do we see God's plan unfolding through Abraham? How do we see it through Israel? How do we see it through the Exodus? How do we see it through the prophets? When we read like this, we suddenly look at the miracles that Jesus is doing and we just think, oh, you know, it's, it's some kind of like equivalent to like a magician doing his tricks. And actually it's rooted deeply back into the Old Testament and Christ in the miracles that he's doing is specifically saying to the people, if they would listen, if you go back and read the Old Text, you'll see that these are the signs of the Messiah. I'm the Messiah, the metaphors he uses, the words he uses are not just words that he concocts as he's going towards the well and he's thinking, I wonder what metaphor I could give this woman to better explain who I am. Maybe I should use death and life or water. Maybe that would be helpful for her to see. No, these are things rooted in the story and the salvation plan and the history and the prophets. And if we miss that, I think it has profound implications for our faith. I think our faith wobbles. And often when we hit crisis in our lives, that's the wobble moments, right? You're going, everything's going great. You're not often doubting your faith. It's when we're struggling, when we can't see God, when we can't feel God, when we, God, where are you? I don't have finance. I don't have a job. I don't have this. That's the crisis moments where we're going before God. If we don't see that God has acted, how do we know that he's going to act now? If we don't look back in history and see that God has brought a nation through much worse than South Africa is in right now, out of slavery where the people are enslaved, with a Red Sea in front of them, and we don't go back and look at the history of the salvation of God's people, then we look at our land and say, oh, it's hopeless. But when we look in the, in the scope of history, we see God has been acting. And then we think, well, that means God is continuing to act. He's acting now. This little thing of mine, it gets put in perspective. Suddenly I realize my job in the grand scheme of everything, God's got it, it's okay. And then I think, well, what about my future? And it begins to birth this hope inside of our hearts that God is not only the God of yesterday, He's not only the God of today, but He's the God of forever. 
And so some of these things are, are subtle things, and we, we struggle to figure out why our faith wobbles. And I'm, I'm telling you, charismatics, some of it is that we are not grounded in the Word of God. We understand some of salvation, we understand some of the gospel, but we do not know the story, the narrative of what God has been doing. And it's powerful, and we're missing out. We're coming in the last two minutes of the movie. So let me ask you this morning, what is the story of Nehemiah and Ezra that we've been dwelling in what does it add to the big picture? What does it add to the big picture? Is it just a story about a wall and some gates? Is it a, is it a narrative about an ethnic group of people returning home? Is this a leadership handbook on how to guide and govern and organize people? And these guys are good. Let's not deny that it could be. But that's not what the whole book is about. Remember, it doesn't end in success. It ends in a failed revival. So something about the leadership, if we're going to embrace it from that angle, we also need to look at leadership failing, right? Or is it a lesson on the reluctance and rebellion of the human heart? Yes, it's, it's, it's all of these things, but I think there's so much more. So go to Nehemiah 5 with me. We're going to be there today again. I forgot to tell you my title. That's very important. I worked very hard on that. It took me about a whole of Tuesday. Not really. Uh, <clears throat> why bother with justice? Why bother with justice? Does anyone else feel overwhelmed when you think about justice in our land? Does anyone else feel like, I don't know where to start? And has anyone else, if we're honest, put your hand up in your heart. Has anyone else reached the point where you're like, I just can't be bothered. It's just so hard. I tried and then that happened and it was rejected. Or, you know, we take the outlying story of the person who helped someone and then they grew up and they murdered them. And we're like, oh, no, that, that, you know, that, proves, that proves that I shouldn't even bother with justice. Anyone ever feel like that? Just me in the room. And the Lord sees your hands. So this is what's going on in Nehemiah 5. There's this great outcry. Nathan spoke so beautifully on it last week. One of your first preachers, Nathan, you're doing great. Really, really great. People say, they give these three kind of things that they're saying, they're crying out to God and they're saying, we're so many people. And immediately I'm saying, well, I, I, I recognize that. We like, I've got five kids. I'm like, yeah, I get that one. And then they're like, and we've got to mortgage our property because of famine. And then they're saying, we can't pay our taxes. And there's all this injustice happening because the people are now selling one another into slavery and whatnot. And we're going to pick up halfway through verse 7. Nehemiah, he's got very angry. And then it says, I held a great assembly against them and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. In other words, we're purchasing these people back from all the other nations. And then you start selling each other to one another. They were silent and could not find a word to say. I think this is where yours starts now, verse 9. Then I pressed further. What you are doing is not right. Should you not walk in the fear of our God in order to avoid being mocked by enemy nations? I myself, as well as my brothers and my workers, have been lending the people money and grain. But now, let us stop this business of charging interest. There's a whole lot of context here I can't go into right now. You must restore their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and homes to them this very day and repay the interest you charged when you lent them money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. They replied, 
We will give back everything and demand nothing more from the people. We will do as you say. Imagine you're watching CakeNet. And there's a politician having an argument with somebody else. And somebody else calls out the wrong in the politician. And this is what you've done. And this is how you've done it. And this is how you corrupt. This is not a normal response, is it? Where the politician on CakeNet says, You're right. I've never seen that. These people are repentant. They're sincere. We will do as you say. Then I called the priests and the nobles and officials. Then I called the priests and I made the nobles and officials swear to do what they had promised. I shook out the folds of my robes and said, If you fail to keep your promise, may God shake you like this from your homes and from your property. The whole assembly responded, Amen. And they praised the Lord. The next time you and I are having a conversation and we need to have some kind of confrontation, whether you're confronting me or I'm confronting you, wouldn't it be amazing if that was the response? When Nehemiah confronts them and says, this is what you're doing wrong, there's repentance in their hearts, and then they say, Amen, and they praise the Lord. Thank you, brother, for showing me that thing I have been doing so badly toward my wife. Thank you. This is a great church. You see, what's happening here, I'm still thinking bigger picture for a little little bit more. Let's ask it this way. How had Jerusalem come to ruin in the first place? Who Who can give me a rough estimate? How far into the story are we from where we started in Jeremiah? Roughly. Timelines. So about 50 to 70 years was the exile. And we're about another 130, by my estimation, 130 years in. So we're almost 200 years down the line, all right? So if you go right back in your mind, for us it's just like two months ago. For these guys it was a lot longer. But if you go right back in your mind, what was one of the primary reasons that God cites as kicking the Israelites out of the promised land and going into exile under the captivity of the Babylonians. What was one of the primary reasons that God said he was going to do that? He kept warning them and warning them and warning them through the prophet Jeremiah. One of the primary reasons was the injustice and the oppression of the poor. Isn't that startling? In fact, if you go and look at Scripture, back up one moment. This is why it's so important to read the whole of Scripture. Because if you only read in the New Testament, maybe you get some sense of like, you are the deacons in Acts, and there were some people crying out, and so they like put some people in charge, and they were helping them with food. And then you go and read later on about a famine, and you see that, you know, Paul raises funds for the famine, and there's some other like little bits and pieces, but you don't get anywhere near the scope of the heart of God, who throughout the Old Testament has been using this issue of poverty and injustice, and the way that people are treated and oppressed as a litmus test or a thermometer in the mouth of his people. God's using it throughout the Old Testament as a way of putting the thermometer in the mouth of Israel and saying, are you a righteous nation? Are you following me right? And one of the accusations that comes again and again through the prophets is when God says, you oppress the people. You oppress the poor and the widow. It's the, the quintet, I think Tim Keller calls it, the quintet of the vulnerable, the orphan, the widow, the migrant. There's another one. If you're here this morning, shout it out. That's why we need some of the big picture. But here, 
in Nehemiah 5, they're doing it all over again. And you're like, okay, 200 years ago, you guys started a 70-year exile. Tons of you were killed. Your city was burned. Your city was pulled down. It was left in rubble. The whole story, the whole reason you're back here, the whole reason you're rebuilding the walls and you're rebuilding Jerusalem is because of what happened. And where did that all start? When you started worshiping idols and when you started mistreating the poor and the vulnerable among you. And now here we are. We've just finished building the wall. We've just got it back to where we started. In fact, they probably hadn't even got it back to the former glory. And here we are doing the same thing again. And what we realize as we read Nehemiah is that what we need is not just a rebuilt city. What God seeks is not just repaired walls. What God seeks is not just a church. What He seeks is not just a cathedral. He doesn't seek just the stones being put in the right place. What God seeks is a city filled with men and women whose hearts have been turned to Him. I want to say that again. What God seeks is a city full of men and women whose hearts have been changed and turned to Him. What good is returning exiles? All the exiles with Zerubbabel, then with Ezra, then with Nehemiah. What good are all these exiles coming back? What good is the temple going up? What good are the repaired walls? And yet hearts are still bent on exploitation and greed. See, this is why... All the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Do you remember who wrote Deuteronomy? Moses. What was profound about Moses' life? He was the one through whom the law came. God gave him the law, right? The Ten Commandments came through Moses. But Moses prophetically points in Deuteronomy 30 to a time when God would do something more powerful among his people because he recognized that the law could not ultimately save them. I'll read it for you in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts. They were circumcising their infants. If you have a boy, there we go. We bring him on Sunday. Get a little thing and we'll sort it out. But they were circumcising their infants. They were doing it physically in God. And Moses was already pointing forward and saying, there's a time coming when God will bring you back into the land and he's going to circumcise your hearts. And the hearts of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. And when you read a word or a little phrase like that, that you may live, I hope that our minds rush forward somewhere in our scripture reading to somewhere like John 4. And we see Jesus with the Samaritan woman that I was speaking about just now. And Jesus says, I will give you what? What will he give her? She's at the well. She's drawing water. What will Jesus give her? Living water. I'm going to make you live. If you knew the water that I was going to give you, you wouldn't need to drink. Uh, You can drink this water forever. It's going to bubble up like eternal life inside of you. I will give you life. And you will never be thirsty again. And she says, well, Lord, give me this water that that I don't have to come back here. She misses the point. And that's another whole sermon. Or John 10, verse 10. I hope your mind rushes there when we read that Moses is is saying, I want to circumcise your hearts that you're going to live. You're going to live. John 10, I have come that you may have life and have life in abundance. Jesus didn't just make up his examples randomly 
on his way to the woman at the well. I wonder how I can help explain this. Jesus is drawing on centuries of Old Testament prophecy. Putting it before the Samaritan woman, which is incredible. She wasn't even of the nation of Israel. And a woman. Noch all. Jeremiah takes this idea and expands on the circumcision of the heart. And then perhaps most beautifully, Ezekiel 36 puts it like this. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. I want to take this heart of stone out of you. I know that I can't make this old ticker work again. Bring your defibrillator. Bring whatever you want. Bring your moralism. Bring your legalism. Try and shock your your stone heart back to life. It's not going to work. He's got to take it out and he's got to put a brand new heart of flesh inside of you. And I hope that our minds, when we read that, run forward to John 3. And Jesus with Nicodemus. And this man comes to him and he's sincere. And he he comes to Jesus, he's a Pharisee. And he says, tell me, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is a law abiding, a law following. And I, I think he's hoping that Jesus is going to say, well, Nicodemus, you're doing the right stuff. But Jesus says to him, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Huh? pardon Jesus what are you we've become so familiar with that phrase oh are you born again you're I'm born again born again speaking in tongues brother Jesus amen but this guy he doesn't know what Jesus is talking about he's completely lost what do you mean I must be born again must I go back into my mom that's what he says in John 3 you go and read him I was I go back into my mom and be born again and Jesus says don't you know you're a teacher of Israel don't you know is Jesus being horribly unfair in that moment Is he demanding something of Nicodemus that it would have been impossible for Nicodemus to know? Jesus is saying, if you go back and you read, you would have seen. You would have seen that this stuff can't bring you to where you want to go. This can't bring you to eternal life. God's got to put a new heart inside of you, Nicodemus. He's got to take out that rock. You've got to be born again. You've got to die. Batesy, you've got to die. He's got to born you again. birth you again and what we realize when we read nehemiah is that it's not just a rebuilt city that we need what god seeks is not just cathedrals or rebuilt walls what god seeks is a city filled with men and women whose hearts have been changed by the gospel think about peter and in his epistle How he writes that we are now the living stones. All the time from from Abraham, they've been trying to, the promised land, it's their promised land, it's Jerusalem. And I wish I could spend some more time just thinking about Jerusalem. And you can think about it in your own time, how right at the end, what comes down in Revelation 21, when he's built a new heaven and a new earth. Jerusalem's still there. A new Jerusalem comes down from heaven. And it was all about this, this Jerusalem and God displaying his glory. And then in Peter, we become the temple. It's no longer about an earthly temple. It's no longer about the glory of an earthly temple. It's about Christ, the cornerstone, and us, the living stones. Each one of you, you're a living stone being built into God's temple. It's beautiful. But we're not there, right? We're not there in Peter. We're not studying Peter. We're studying Nehemiah. And if you have 
been waiting to find out what happens at the end, and you missed the few sermons where we've spoken about it. I'm sorry to ruin it for you, but it doesn't end well. Nehemiah doesn't end well. It's just it's a continuation of what we've been speaking about this whole series. There's like this hope. We're on the new Exodus anticlimax. Then there's this anticlimax. There's hope anticlimax the whole way through. And it's quite depressing in that sense. Like the book you keep, but it's actually beautiful because when you look at it and you zoom out, what you realize is that the whole book of Ezra and Nehemiah is saying, all these things you thought could save you, all these things you thought would restore you to the new Israel, the temple. The rebuilding of the walls, the bringing of the Torah, all these things, they're all just pointing forward and saying, it can't work. There's one coming. There's one coming. His name is Jesus. He's coming. He's coming. You'll call him Emmanuel. He's going to do this. And Isaiah begins to unpack what Jesus is going to do. They unpack the prophets, what he, how he's going to die. But they only saw like little bits and pieces. They longed to see what we know. Remember, I think it was in the third week we were speaking about, I've been using this, this example of like the, 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 the Bible as almost like a play with these repeating acts. And it's like act one, act two, act three, act four. Hopefully you still remember that. I worked hard on that, guys. You've got to remember that. Give me something here, you know. And act one is where God's people sin and God sends a Messiah. Sometimes it's a Messiah, it's a Messiah figure like an Abraham or a, a Moses or a, a Noah or a Ezra or Nehemiah as we're busy speaking about. And then God redeems. He sends this, he sends this Messiah. Put up number two for me if you would. God freezes people. He redeems them. He, he shows his mercy and he shows his enduring faithfulness. Rescues them from Egypt. Or through Joseph, he saves, he saves them. All these different examples of this Christ-type figure. Go to Act 3. The Lord invites this people into the biblical drama to love and serve him as his people. And you expect, you expect that they're going to keep serving him and loving him forever because of what he's done. He's set them free from Egypt. He's taken them through the Red Sea. But what do they do? They follow him for a while, but then they slip back into sin. And this is the repeating cycle of, of the Old Testament. It's just over and over, this, these anti climatic moments and we see the same thing here in nehemiah look what they declare verse 12 we will give back everything and demand nothing more from the people we will do as you say the whole assembly responded amen and they praised the lord and the people did as they had promised dot 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 insertion for a while because when we come back 13 years later into the text in chapter 12 and 13, we see Nehemiah going and starting to pull guys' hair out, literally. Because again, they've gone back into their cycles. They've drifted again. Because they couldn't sustain it. And I've been saying all of this this morning. And I know I've already said a lot. I'm hoping you're getting used to me by now. I've been saying all of this to bring us to this point. If our response to injustice, whatever we, wherever we may see it, is out of some kind of stone heart, if it's out of some kind of law or legalism, like paying your TV license, it's the right thing to do. If it's out of that place, if it's out of guilt or condemnation, how many of you feel guilty? I'm sure we've all gone through that. You drive past somewhere, you look, you think, well, I have this in my home. 
and we feel that guilt, that condemnation, if it's some kind of head-based, theoretically reasoned position on how we have done wrong and how we need to fix it, and those theories are right and the head-based thinking is right, but if it doesn't sink into our hearts, with every good intention in the world, we will cry, just like these people in Nehemiah. We will give back everything and demand nothing more from the people. We will do as you say, code for, we will not be unjust, we will not oppress the people, we will do what God's word says, and the people did as they promised and we, we may in our human effort rebuild some of the walls we might make it look like a facade in Stellenbosch you could look around and you could see well it looks like there's stuff happening there and these guys are looking like and they're giving away money and they're doing this and we may build some of the walls and some of the gates will be repaired but unless we do it because the love of Christ has been lavished on us and we can't help but respond it will fail it will fail It'll, unless it reaches the heart level where we begin to see what Jesus Christ has done to us and then we respond out of that. Otherwise, how do we do justice? When we do justice and it gets rejected, what do we need to know? That Christ was rejected for me. And so I say, well, Christ, I look at you. You were rejected and so I respond when I was rejected. I keep on doing it just like you did. When we try and we do something wrong and we misunderstood of course we want to learn from being stupid, but if we do something and we misunderstand, we say, well, Christ, you were misunderstood. It doesn't like exempt us from, from trying again. We say, Christ, you were misunderstood, so we've been misunderstood, so we're going to carry on. And people come and say, well, you're actually trying to do this. You're trying to make the church big by having a social justice arm called Sir Stellenbosch. And there's misunderstanding. And we've got to say, well, so what? Whatever you think, that's fine. Jesus was misunderstood. We're going to carry on. And only when we look to Christ is this thing sustainable. Does this resonate with anybody? See, what we need is Jesus to change us completely. We don't need the DA to take power. Some of us think if that happens, then we're going to be okay. We don't need the DA to take power. We don't need to simply see the problems more often. We don't need to see the problems from a different angle. We don't primarily need to have them more clearly explained to us. We don't need another emotional appeal to us that appeals to our emotions and that works for a year or two and then it fades and dies in our hearts. What we need is Ezekiel 36 for God to come and in our hearts that he's already put a heart of flesh inside of us to show us what Jesus has actually done for us. And out of that place, we begin to respond. Let me show you how it happens here. And now I'm actually going to get into the text for those of you who've been worried all morning. Let me show you some of what Jesus, some of the Jesus of history in Nehemiah. I think this passage beautifully displays a shadow, if you would, of the coming Christ. I don't know what it's called. What is, what is it called when it comes before? A foreshadowing. There we go. Because I was thinking like echo, then I was like, well, that doesn't work because you have to, yeah, anyway, a foreshadowing. So let's read from verse 14. I want to show you this, this Jesus type figure that Nehemiah presents, but that we see fulfilled in Christ. For the entire 12 years, I'm in verse 14. For the entire 12 years that I was governor of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of the reign of King Artaxerxes, neither I nor my officials drew on our official food allowance. So they had this allowance they were allowed to take, they didn't touch it. The former governors, those who came before me, in contrast, had laid heavy burdens on the people, demanding a daily ration of food and wine, besides 40 pieces of silver. 
Even their assistants took advantage of the people. But because I feared God, I did not act that way. I also devoted myself to working on the wall and refused to acquire any land. And I required all my servants to spend time working on the wall. I asked for nothing, even though I regularly fed 150 Jewish officials at my table. And blokes can eat. Right? Listen to what these guys eat. The provisions I made each day, one ox, six choice sheep or goats, a large number of poultry. That's just the meat. Unless you count the chicken as salad. <laughs> and every 10 days, we needed a large supply of all kinds of wine. Yet I refused to claim the governor's food allowance because the people already carried a heavy burden. Remember, oh my God, all that I have done for these people and bless me for it. Now in Nehemiah, and I'm not going to be long, so you don't have to stress. Your roast chicken is going to be just fine in the oven. In Nehemiah, we see a man who clearly leads differently to everybody else. He leads differently to all the governors and all the other rulers of his time. And I want to point out some things here which are startlingly like Jesus Christ. Neither I nor my officials drew on our official food allowance. Guys, what is, what, if you're a governor, what is your food allowance? It's your it's a big word in South Africa. It's your right. It's your right. In fact, it's legally yours. In fact, it's justly yours. It's completely legitimate. It's not even going into the bounds of corruption. This is just what's yours legally. It's your right. I think one of the most beautiful things you can do is to take this passage of Nehemiah, print out a copy of it, put it up, or if you've worked digitally, do that. I'm going to save the trees. God's making more trees. Put it up. Put a passage from Philippians 2. I'll go on and on about this since we did our Philippians series last year. The Messiah poem. It's unbelievable. It's the most succinct, beautiful, for me, picture of, of the life of Christ and the death of Christ and all of that encompasses. And you put them up together and you begin to compare and look at them. And I'll show you a little bit of that. But... Neither I nor my officials drew on our official allowance. In other words, I laid down my rights. I didn't demand as a leader my rights. And we go and we read in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5, it says, you must have the same attitude. You, church, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. And incidentally, if you don't know me, I mean me too. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. Jesus, the actual Nehemiah, Nehemiah is giving up some of his rights. Jesus gives up all his rights, leaving heaven to come to earth. He gave up his divine privileges. Nehemiah says, the former governors, in contrast, had laid heavy burdens on the people. In other words, he's saying, I'm a different kind of governor. I'm a different kind. They like this, they, in contrast to me, they're different to me. Do you know that Jesus was different to the former governor? Who was the former governor? Who, let's look what he did. He demands, and he's a demanding and an exacting official over the people. He lays heavy burdens upon the people that they could not meet. And when they couldn't meet them, he enslaves them. Who is the New Testament former governor? 
Say it louder. The law. Who is the former governor who laid burdens upon the people that they could not carry? It's the law. Look at what Romans 8 says. Verse 3. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. The law couldn't do it. The law was the, the former governor that, that promised that they could, they could reach the state of righteousness, but they could never make it. They constantly slipped back. And that's the whole story of the, New Test, of the Old Testament. Again and again, these cycles and cycles of people trying with good intentions and never being able to make it because their heart was stone and not a heart of flesh. And then Jesus, who's the new governor, he's nothing like this former governor, where this governor put weight on them and they couldn't carry the weight. Jesus comes and what does he say? Come to me, all who are weary and burdened. Come to me. You're trying to carry this weight of the law. You're weary, you're burdened. Come to me. My burden is, my yoke is, Nehemiah says he didn't take advantage of the people like the former governors and like the, even their assistants. And he gives a reason. He says, because I feared God, I did not act that way. Because I feared God. Nehemiah refuses to do what he pleases. In fact, Nehemiah refuses to take up what is rightfully his. That he's earned. I've earned this salary. It's mine. It's my rights. It's rightfully mine. He refuses to do what he pleases. Why? Because he fears God. He wants the will of God in his life. And now we think about Jesus. I can take you back into Philippians. Verse 7. Instead he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave. I'm reading out of the NLT just because I like to read fresh versions. Help me see it new again. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal death on a cross, obedient to the point of death. Or we could think about Jesus saying to his disciples, when we think about Nehemiah's obedience to God and his fear of God and his awe of God and wanting to do the will of God, we can think of Jesus saying, I only do what I see the Father do. I want to do the will of my Father. We could think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, one of his most vulnerable moments, one of the moments I think we see the most beautiful human side of Christ where he says, Father, can this cup be taken from me? Is there another way? But not my will, but your will. I want to obey you. Maybe one of the most beautiful things we see in Nehemiah is in verse 16. He says, I also devoted myself to working on the wall and refused to require any land. I required all my servants to spend time working on the wall. Now remember, as you've been saying, Nehemiah is a leader. He's a governor. He's seen every governor before him acquire land through his power. Every other governor has enriched himself because of the position that's been afforded him as governor of the land. He's able to lord it over the people. He's the governor. He's the ruler. He can say, Nathan, get your shovel, son. Go to the wall. I'm sitting at home having my pina colada. You go and work. I'm the boss. 
I'm in charge. Instead, Nehemiah makes a point to tell us that he devotes himself to working on the wall. There's a verse later on, I think it's in chapter 7, where he doesn't even go and change clothes because he's so devoted to working on the wall and he continues personally to work on the wall. We see Nehemiah refusing to take up his leadership rights. What clearer picture as a foreshadow of Jesus Christ, the ultimate servant leader? Guys, what what kind of God do we serve? What kind of God do we serve who, who doesn't just come and demand standards of us and say to us, well, Jesus did it, so you can do it. Good luck. Like the Pharisees did. Instead, we have, as Hebrews 4 says in verse 15, it says, We have a high priest, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. In other words, he knows where you are. This ultimate servant leader. Or we can think about Jesus Christ washing his disciples' feet. I'm sure you've heard sermons on how ridiculously countercultural that was. I'm sure you've heard about the sewer that used to run through the streets because there was no such thing as PVC piping. And that when they walked in their sandals, their feet would be absolutely filthy. And Jesus gets down and he washes their feet. I had a conversation with somebody this week who's working in Doha. One of, actually, Anna, that, used to, that was with us, and she's in Doha for the last year and a half. And she's a teacher, and she's teaching in the, in the church there. My cousins are, are part of that church, and she is in the kids' church, and she wanted to wash um, the children's feet. She felt God telling her to wash the children's feet. But it's a very uh, weird scenario because there's cultures. They've got 70 different nationalities in that church. 70. Can you imagine the cultural clashes? So some kids didn't want to take their shoes off and other kids were already barefoot and there's all these different, and she had to try and explain to them that Jesus came and said, this is what leadership looks like. This is what it is. And she tried to get them to wash one another's feet and eventually they warmed up and began to wash each other's feet. But we don't get how countercultural it is. And all we, all we think about when we, think, when we think about Nehemiah, the servant leader who was prepared to work on the wall himself over and over again, we, we can think about Jesus and his disciples having the argument. You know the famous argument? I'm going to send my mom. My mom's going to tell Jesus who should be the greatest in the kingdom. And so the two, two brothers, their mom goes and tells Jesus. And then the, the disciples are arguing and they're constantly arguing because they just don't get it, do they? They just don't get it. And Jesus takes them and he says, guys, you don't understand. You really don't understand. You should not be like the Gentiles who lord it over each other. I'm bringing a whole new leadership paradigm. The greatest is the servant. And they're like, say, say what? What kind of God is this? I'll tell you what kind of God it is. It's the same God who's been showing himself to us the whole way through the Old Testament. It's the same God who's stirring Nehemiah's heart instead of to lord it over the people and take everything he can and enrich himself. He's working on the wall. And then the last point I'll pull out of this text is that we see generosity beyond justice. Nath, you, you finished off just so powerfully last week when we spoke through the fact that God, if you weren't here last week, you can go and download it, listen to it. There's a podcast. There's a million ways you can do it. You've got no excuses, the point. You really can catch up. Nathan just spoke at the end about how God has justice in Christ. 
what Christ did for us here is justice. And yet he extends beyond justice to grace and gives us grace. And that as a response, we see the same idea here in Nehemiah. Verse 17, I asked for nothing, even though I regularly fed 150 Jews. And then skip down further on. You can see how, what he feeds them. We read that already. Yet I refused to claim the governor's food allowance because the people already carried a heavy burden. I want you to think about this. Nehemiah is saying, I put you at my table. I didn't just not take food from your table. Do you get that? I didn't just say, I'm not going to take what's rightfully mine from you. I could have come and taken all that and I could have fed all these people with that money. That's, the gov- that's what the governor's allowance was for. He says, I didn't just do that. I still fed you and I did it at my cost. I put you at my table while refusing to take from yours. And I wonder if there's a more beautiful picture of Jesus than the Old Testament. And Nehemiah shadows for us this now revealed Jesus Christ. And you might be wondering why in the world did I call it? Why bother with justice? Well, this is why. Because at this moment we can say this is why we bother with justice. This is why we go back when it's complicated. This is why we think about it again. This is why we resist the urge to be jaded and to just be immersed in South African culture which doesn't want to think about it and drives past it every day, myself included, every single day. This is why we come again and say, Father, cut us to the heart. Show us why this matters. Show us why this is important. What Christ has done for me is the motivation for anything that I'm going to do for others. It's our fitting response. I want, to, I want to land in a really practical example because I think the gospel should always bring us to a place where we're saying, Lord, can I o- obey you? And I'm, I'm convinced that unless we get a view of Jesus Christ that translates into the way that we live justice in our world, we're going to fall off the horse on one way or another. Do you know what I mean by that? So there's a brilliant book if you want to read a little bit more called When Helping Hurts outstanding book when helping hurts and how when we try to help so often we hurt and so this is falling off the horse on either side we get jaded or we try and help or you know there's so many different things we can fall off on and only when we come in Christ do I feel that we can bring something that's worthwhile and it's there for the long haul and I want to just use an example of exactly what we're speaking about in Nehemiah Nathan mentioned it last week when he shared the story of his friend who who ended up taking his domestic worker to the dentist so I've got this right. And at the dentist, the child's teeth were rotten. And the dentist said, well, why haven't you been brushing the child's teeth? And the employee was there with the, with the domestic worker. And she said, I haven't got money for toothbrush. And I haven't got money for toothpaste. And he was cut to the heart. And he went home and began to search the scriptures and say, God, surely there should be something more than this. I should be doing something more than this. And he came to this conviction. And nation, Nathan, nation, it's a prophecy, bro. <laughs> From the man with five kids, nation. Just over there. Come on, mans. Nathan brought out this, this idea of, of living wage. And there's a, lot, there's a lot out there. And the idea is this, that there's a minimum wage imposed by the government. And the government says, this is what you need to pay a day. But for many, many people, if you had to go and look at them, sit with them and say, tell me what you actually need to live. Not luxuriously. Not buying 
all sorts of extras. Just tell me what you need to live. Basic hygiene, food, accommodation that's, that's safe, and whatever else you could ask. And what your calculations reach is called the living wage. There's a brilliant website that I actually went on this week. You can go and just search livingwage.co.za and, and you can put in what you currently pay your domestic worker or your gardener and it'll tell you how you are on the scale with, that they've calculated for a living wage. It's just a general kind of scale, right? And I'm going after this one because I think 90% of us in the room are engaged in paying and putting food on someone's table at the end of a month, right? So I know it's close to home. That's a good thing. That's what God wants to get at our hearts. So the way that we mostly, if you think about how we would calculate, we want to get somebody to work in our home. So what do we do? Maybe Facebook, maybe SMS a few friends, Maybe the group chat on your street, whatever it is. Hey, what do you pay a domestic? And so we take it from somebody else, right? Is this familiar for anybody? Um, or we say, what's the going rate? What's the going rate? What's the least I can pay this person? Or we say, what's the minimum wage? And that's how we kind of calculate what we're trying to do. And then, what... What I'm trying to encourage us to do, let me go to that rather. What I'm trying to encourage us to do is to not take from their table. Because what we don't realize what we do, if, we don't, if we're not paying a living wage, we are taking from their table. They don't have enough left over on their table. And there's an outcry going up to God like we have in Nehemiah chapter 5. And if we choose instead to respond like Christ, if we respond like Nehemiah, then we choose to take from our table and to give to them. And what that means is that your table is going to have a little bit less on it. So it means that your table might not have DSTV on it. It means that your table might not have something or other on it that you really, 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 really like. But I want to root this idea that we see here that Nehemiah refused to take the governor's allowance. He refused to take what was rightfully his. You could, you could claim it legally. I'm paying the minimum wage. I know you can do that. And you can, I'm not putting condemnation on you. If you, before God, have got a clear conscience with that, that's your baby. But I'm saying, I think that we're taking from people's tables. And I'm saying, God is, God is giving us a chance that we can say, Lord, in this one little area, we don't have to think about the whole entire South Africa and how are we going to change it. God, what's, what's in the shade of my tree, God? What can I change? What, what could happen in my life that could make a significant difference to somebody else? And I'm telling you, this practical example could make a huge difference. That we take something off our table, have a proper conversation with our domestic worker, our gardener, whoever it may be, people that work for you, and we find out what it is that they need on their table. And we say, Father, I'm going to sacrifice those things like Nehemiah did. I'm going to lay down my right to governor, to minimum wage, to whatever your right may be. And I'm going to put more. I'm going to put an ox. I'm going to put six sheep. I'm going to put some poultry. I'm going to put ten wine every ten days. I'm going to put more. I'm going to go above and beyond. Are you with me? So I'm really bumbling through this part. I hope, you, I hope the Spirit of God is getting to you where my language can't. Justice is not the Christian response. Grace is. Generosity is. And that can only come when we see how generous Christ has been with us. And the living ways that I've used as a, as a bumbling example this morning is just one of a hundred ways that I think truly looking at Christ helps shape and inform how we do justice. Guys, our, 
domestic workers should be able to come up here and testify about us and say, I have never been cared for like this. I've never had grace lavished on me like this. I've never felt as loved as this. I've never been as respected. I've never been treated with as much dignity as I have in this person's home. All right, and so then we finish as we come to the table. And this is the crazy part in the ending, ending of Nehemiah. He, he invited us, Christ invited us to eat at his table, just like Nehemiah invited those officials. But unlike Nehemiah, who put one ox and six sheep and some poultry, Christ put his body on the table. He said, he took it, he literally took it, we don't have to guess, he took it and he said, this is my body, eat it! I give it to you, eat it! He says, this is my blood. I didn't just give you a pound of flesh. I didn't just say, well, here's my, here's my one big thumb. You can have that on the table. He put everything on the table, not just Nehemiah generosity, but everything. Aren't you grateful that he didn't just pay the going rate? Aren't you grateful he didn't just pay the minimum wage and require us to work for the rest, forever going home and wondering whether we've done enough to survive, whether we've done enough to make the cut. You see, guys, what God is after is our heart of flesh. Take out the heart of stone, Father. Let's pray. Father, we seek to see a city filled with men and women whose hearts have been stirred and turned to you, God. And we thank you that we can stand today and we can preach not from a, a place of waiting for the Messiah, but from a place of pointing back at Jesus and pointing forward to the future coming kingdom. And that we can say, you empower us now to live in some of this. Yes, not perfectly. Yes, not completely. But you have put a new heart inside of us, God. Inside of us is beating a heart of flesh in line with the Father more and more. We want to come and say, Lord, teach us where our heart is out of step with yours. Even this morning, Father, I pray not one piece of condemnation over your people. Not one piece of legalism. I have to. I must. I should. Father, I want to pray that the take home from this message is a revelation of Jesus. And that from that revelation, as we dwell and linger and ponder and think about Jesus, that it would so shape our worldview that justice is just one little part of what it changes in our lives. Come and change our marriages. Come and change the way we parent. Come and change the way we do our finances. Come and change the way we pay our tax returns. Come and change the way that we treat people. Come and change the friend that we are. God, we invite you into every area of our lives. Come and change the way we drive, the impatience that we display. Come and, sh come and change the, the briar talk and the subtle racism in our hearts, God. Jesus, as we take your body and your blood, we remember that this was not something lightly won. That a great price was paid. Lord, we know that as we, even in our hearts, God, right now, would you stir us to commitments? Stir us to commitments in our hearts, Lord. And as we do that, guys, it's costly. It's going to hurt. There's going to be months when you think, why did I do that? Why did I listen to that preacher? Why didn't I just go home and forget about it. 
it's going to hurt. In those moments, we look to Jesus and we say, but Lord, you've done more than we ever could. This is just a small part of how we can respond to you. In Jesus' name.